We just saw a few minutes ago five testimonies of God's grace in baptism. That was during the second hour. During the first hour, we saw five others. So 10 people today came to our church before our church and proclaimed the good news that they believe about Jesus Christ, that they believe the gospel, that they're Christians, that they want to long alongside the others, in the others in this church to walk with him and to follow him. Christian baptism, however, is one of the most misunderstood parts of the Christian faith. In our abbreviated time this morning, since we, we rightfully took the time to hear these testimonies, I want us to talk about what it means to rescue baptism from misunderstanding. Rescuing baptism from misunderstanding. The history of the church bears witness to the fact that there's much confusion about baptism. There have been ongoing debates, debates over the centuries, the millennia, about Christian baptism. Is it by immersion or is it by sprinkling? There have been debates about the efficacy of baptism, whether it grants salvation and entrance into the covenant community of God and entrance into heaven or whether it's something else. There have been ongoing debates about whether baptism should happen and happen at all. Is it necessary? There have been ongoing debates about when baptism should happen, whether it should be for infants, babies, or believing adults. And then there's the in-between. How old must a person be to be baptized? What, when should we take that statement of faith as legitimate and serious? Some would say a simple confession is sufficient for baptism. Others would argue that a person must prove the genuineness of their faith over a period of time, sometimes months or years. What do you think about baptism? If people were to ask you the questions that surround baptism, who, when, where, why, what, do you have a good biblical answer? It should be no surprise that we submit our thoughts about baptism here at Mission Road to God's Word and God's Word alone. Let's begin by looking together at a simple narrative that most of you know about, Acts chapter 8. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. The familiar story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but in the progression of this story, there's some interesting observations we can make about baptism, Acts chapter 8, let's pick it up in verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is Philip and his companions, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, fellow from Africa, a court of the, the court of Candace, a queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, sitting on his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot, this carriage. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Isaiah 53. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Pick it up in verse 38. He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and passed through, kept preaching the gospel all the cities until he came to Caesarea. What's interesting to me about that is whatever Philip told this eunuch about the gospel, it included the requirement and the expectation that he would be baptized because he believed the gospel. Such that when the eunuch saw water, he says, why wait for the service on Sunday? Let's Let's be let me be baptized right now, right here. As Jesus was leaving the earth physically before the ascension, he called his disciples together and gave them a charge. We all know this as, know this as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There's evangelism. Of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Central to that command, to that uh, uh, charge, is make disciples. In fact, it's the only verb, make disciples. As you're going, teaching and, and uh, sharing the the good news of the gospel and baptizing come alongside that main command of making disciples. The idea here is for believers to go out, share the gospel, and see God convert souls. And a part of that commissioning involved the command for believers to be baptized. At the end of the very first sermon in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter responded to the people saying, what should we do with this information? And Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know the story, 3,000 people believed, were converted, and 3,000 people were baptized on that day. What a service that must have been. 
Again, it's interesting to me that the subject of evangelism came up in Philip's conversation with the eunuch. It's also interesting to me that the knee-jerk reaction to the people asking Peter, what should we do, is repent and be baptized. Why would someone who believes the gospel not, not be baptized? Well, I think we can outline a few reasons. First of all, ignorance, they, they just don't know. No one ever told them that there was the expectation and command of Jesus that if you believe the good news of the gospel, that you, you should be baptized. Another reason to resist, maybe pride. People just say, well, I, I don't want to stand in front of people. I have a fear of, of, uh, of uh, people looking at me, and that pride keeps them from obeying the command to be baptized. Indifference, you just don't think it's important. Defiance, well, I know the Bible says I should, but I won't. Unbelief, sometimes people don't get, follow the Lord's command to be baptized because they have no genuine conversion. They're not genuinely saved. There's no conviction of the Spirit. But I think the most prevalent reason is misunderstanding. They just don't understand what baptism is and what it isn't. So for our time together this morning abbreviated as it might be, I just want to ask some very simple questions to understand baptism in the context that we just baptized 10 precious souls this morning. So let's answer five important questions about baptism. Answering five important questions about baptism. Very simple. First of all, what is baptism? What is it? Well, it comes from the Greek word baptizo. The word baptizo means to immerse or to die, D-Y-E. It was used before it was used as a, as a Christian uh, ceremony of dyeing clothes. You would baptize a cloth by putting it into the dye and picking it up. It should go without saying that to fully dye the, the cloth, it would need to be immersed in the dye. Otherwise, you don't have a dyed cloth. You have tie-dye. You just sprinkle it, and it's splattered. By the way, bapto and baptizo are never used in the passive tense. What that means is there are no, there's no grammatical place in the New Testament where water is applied to the person being baptized, sprinkled, touched, poured on. It's always the person in the water being baptized. Never are those verbs used in a passive sense of water being placed on someone. So whenever you read in the New Testament about a baptism, an actual occasion of baptism, immersion is what they're speaking of. A few examples. Matthew 3.13, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, says that, Matthew 3.16, rather, he came up out of the water. In John 3, verse 23 there was deep water where John the Baptist could baptize. John 3.23, John was baptizing in Aeneon near Salmon because there was much water there. Not enough where he could get a cup and sprinkle people. It was enough water to get people in. And then as we said in Acts chapter 8, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and came out. Let me say it as simple as I can. The New Testament says nothing about pouring, sprinkling, Touching with water, or as we'll see in a moment, baptizing infants. 
It was an act of an adult person going into a depth of water enough to be submerged and to come out. Baptism has great spiritual significance in the New Testament. It can only be depicted, that I think can only be depicted by immersion. In Romans 6, it talks about baptism being a symbol of the death and burial and resurrection of our communion, our, our unanimity with uh, union with Christ, our solidarity with Christ. So there's a picture of dying, going under the water, being buried, and then coming out as a picture of newness of life. But you need to know this too. There are times in the Bible when the word baptism or baptizo is very dry, no water at all. It's used as a euphemism, as an illustration of simple immersion. We even speak of that in our own language today. We talk about someone was baptized in, in that situation, baptized by fire. When sometimes people say that something was Christianized, they say it was baptized. We don't mean it was literally put in the water. John the Baptist talked about a baptism of fire in John chapter 3. He didn't mean that people would be immersed in literal flames. He meant immersed, immersed in the flames, judged by the flames. There's a baptism by Christ, a baptism with the Holy Spirit, a baptism into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says we've all been baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Not literal water there, just a euphemism of association and identification. So when a person becomes a Christian, you are immersed in the communion of the redeemed. You're placed in union with every other believer, immersed into the body of Christ. And water baptism symbolizes or pictures that. Solidarity, union, communion. The word can have that sort of metaphoric meaning when it's applied to baptizing that's not water I mean, you could easily say, I was immersed in my work. I was immersed in thought. Well, Paul used it literally and physically, and he also used it metaphorically. But what is baptism? It was dunking a person. It was putting someone under the water for a spiritual symbol and a reason. Which leads us to our next question, what does it mean? Well, it's a little bit of an odd thing, isn't it? Remember that there was baptism before Jesus. There was baptism before there was Christian baptism. The Essenes were baptizing down at Qumran. It was a, a cousin to what we would call a Jewish ceremonial cleansing in a mikvah, in a pool, that you would go down, cleanse yourself ceremonially, and then go to worship. Two words need to stand out in your mind when you ask, what does baptism mean? Two things, identification and symbolism. It means we're identifying with the Savior, with the person you're being baptized in the name of, and symbolism, it, it, it's a picture of something that's happened in our heart. We've been cleansed from the inside out. God has applied his righteousness to us, taken our sin away. What does it mean? Let me say this as clearly as I can, and I want to say it twice. Baptism does not, cannot, and will not save anyone. Now, I have to say that because we have some, Roman Catholicism believes this, the, there are some elements of the Church of Christ that believes this, called baptismal regeneration. In other words, the water is what saves you. 
Listen to the Catholic Catechism. Paragraph 977. Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins. That's pretty crazy. Baptism gives forgiveness of sins. But it goes on in paragraph 2020 of the Catholic of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Listen carefully. Justification, being a Christian, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted to us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. It is, baptism is the most excellent work of God's mercy, end quote. The Anglican Church, following suit, and there's a longer history to this that we can talk about later, largely to, they were baptizing babies in the Anglican Church and the Church of England to combat them being born into the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. But by the time you get to the, the 1800s, the late 1800s, the, there was a debate that was happening between Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist preacher in London, and the surrounding Anglican or Church of England pastors, they baptizing babies and Spurgeon believing in credo-baptism or, or baptism because of your faith. And on Sunday morning, June 5th, 1864, Spurgeon preached a sermon that caused a major stir in his church and all around London, rocked all of Great Britain. The sermon was a calculated and direct attack on the Anglican church's view of infant baptism. This is what he said, quote, If this be your teaching, infant baptism, that regeneration goes with baptism, I say it looks like the teaching of a spurious church which has craftily invented a mechanical salvation to deceive the ignorant, the sensual, and groveling minds rather than the teaching of the most profoundly, uh, profound of all spiritual teachers, Jesus, who rebuked scribes and Pharisees for regarding outward rites as more important than inward grace. He goes on in the sermon to say this, but you will say, why do you cry out against it? I cry out against it because I believe that baptism does not save the soul and that the preaching of it has a wrong and evil influence on men. And then he concludes the sermon with these words. I do beseech you to remember that you must have a new heart and a right spirit and baptism cannot give these to you. You must turn from your sins and follow after Christ. You must have such a faith as to make your life holy and your speech devout or else you have not faith, the faith of God's elect. And into God's kingdom you shall never come. I pray you never rest upon this wretched and rotten foundation, this deceitful invention of Antichrist. Pretty strong. Oh, may God save you from it and bring you to seek the true rock of refuge for weary souls. End quote. I think Spurgeon is very clearly telling us he understood that the doctrine of believing that baptism can save you is a damnable heresy. He believed that so, that so much in his heart that it violated the doctrines of grace that he preached a whole sermon on it here and multiple to follow up. What does baptism mean? It means public identification and a symbol of what's happened in your heart. 
That's what it means. So who should be baptized then? Who? Who should we baptize? Who's a qualified candidate? Simple answer. Believers in the gospel. Let me just remind all of us that the gospel is very simple. It's really easy to kind of understand and break down into three kind of parts. There are facts you have to believe. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus died on a Roman cross. Jesus physically, historically, literally raised from being dead. He came back to life after being buried as a dead man. The facts of what he taught, the facts of what he did, the facts of who he was. Those are facts. But then you have to believe the theology about those facts. The facts about Jesus are different than every other person who's ever lived because they have theological significance that no other person, no other person ever accomplished. That Jesus, because of who he was and is, God, very God, took, he took on the sins of those who would believe and took their punishment instead of them. Died instead of them, died for them, because the wages of sin is death. And he, he's the one who stood in between a believer and God to say, they're, they're, my righteousness is now theirs, and I will die for their sin. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, our sin, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the facts you have to believe theology, spiritual realities about those facts, and then a response. The response is clear. We read it in Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent. You turn from your ways, you turn from your selfish orientation, and you, you follow him. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 1. Follow me, follow me. That's the essence of Christianity. Because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus said and taught and accomplished on the cross, the resurrection, he says, follow me. Who should be baptized? People who believe those realities, understand that theology, and have responded in repentance. Every student of Scripture will find that every single instance of being baptized in the New Testament follows after conversion after belief, after expressing faith in the gospel. So what about infants? Now, this is worthy of a whole hour in and of itself, and maybe we'll do that in the future. What about infant salvation? Some of my dearest friends believe in pedo-baptism or infant baptism. And not everyone, by the way, who believes in Pedo-baptism believes in infant salvation because of that baptism. Let's be clear about that. But it's very confusing as to what it is. It almost all goes back to Acts chapter 16. You can turn there if you want to. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. And the Philippian jailer's household. That's where everyone talks about. Because it says clearly... Well, let me read that to you. Acts 16, verse 31. And they said... This is uh, Peter and his... Companions in jail, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all the men who, all who were with him in his house. And he took them that very hour of that night, washed their wounds. Immediately he, the jailer, was baptized, he and all his household. And some say that, well, all of his household includes infants. Well, is it not obvious that 
there is no clearer claim that there are infants in that household than that there are not. It, it doesn't say. It's, it's a big assumption to say that, well, that must have included infants. But I think there's something, a clue in the text that tells us it did not. Look back to the first verse in verse 31. They said, believe, this is faith in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the central command. You And you will be saved. Salvation comes from faith in Christ. Is that clear there? And then he says, you and your household. So the you and your household would include those who believed, had faith in Christ, and were saved because of that belief. I don't think there's any infants in this passage at all. Others say baptism, and this is worthy of another study as well, but others say that baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of the covenant. I've seen entire books devoted to this issue, and you can certainly find some good research on this. But nowhere is a connection made in the New Testament between baptism and circumcision. Not only that, why would the Christian church ever baptize women? Do I need to explain that? They weren't circumcised. So if it's a one-for-one correlation, it doesn't make much sense. Who should be baptized? Those who have believed the good news of the gospel and committed to follow Christ. That's who should be baptized. When should it happen? When should a person be baptized? Well, the simple answer, as we've seen over and over, is after their conversion, after they've expressed faith in Christ. Now, this becomes a little... um, tricky for those of us who are raising our kids in the church, and praise God, it's a little little tricky. And we should, let me say this very carefully, we should always affirm every step a little one takes toward the gospel. Every time, every, every commitment they want to make, let's affirm that. Let's be behind that. We don't need to throw doubt or cast any aspersions on that. But what about children? Should you, should you baptize the the three-year-olds or the four-year-olds. Let me just tell you right now, if I wanted to be a hero of baptism, I could go down to our three-year-old Sunday Sunday school class this afternoon, and I could say, hey, who wants to go to heaven instead of hell? Hey, who wants to commit your life to Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived? Hey, who loves Jesus, such a sweet and wonderful man? Hey, who wants to be baptized? Be pretty easy. And yet, we should be teaching those realities to our little ones. And when they say, I want to do that, say, let's keep talking about these things. Wisdom should reign in when we baptize someone. We've put a, not an arbitrary, but an informed kind of marker in our church that it should be post-puberty. In other words, once the physical body begins to demonstrate adulthood, that's when we say, let's, let's, let's now talk about baptism. That's based loosely on the fact that, you know, the Old Testament, there was a bar mitzvah celebration where you celebrated a young man become a young boy becoming a man. And uh, we just want to wait to see that that faith is confirmed and real. Um, not only that, in my own pastoral experience, in the last four decades, I have rebaptized dozens of people who were baptized as young children. 
because they believed everything they could believe when they were young children, but it wasn't until they were older that they understood the depth of their sin, the reality of following Christ, the cost of discipleship, and were truly converted then. So wisdom has to reign, obviously. I think we need to be very careful making it too early or postponing it. I know places and churches in, in, uh, in the world that say, well, you need to wait till you graduate, go to college for at least one or two years, demonstrate your faith, then we'll talk about baptism. Well, there has to be something in between those extremes, I would think. My own baptism is a testimony to this. I, uh, when I was nine years old, my two best friends, John Nelson and Daryl Oliver, I still remember, were baptized. I was sitting right over there, and I watched them be baptized, and I thought, that's important, that's cool, I'm going to get baptized. So I went in and talked to our pastor, Pastor Baker, and I said, I think I want to be baptized. And he dutifully said, do you believe the gospel? I said, well, what is that? He explained it to me. I said, yeah, I believe that. And I was baptized two weeks later as a nine-year-old. But I wasn't converted until I was 16. I didn't really understand the depth of my sin, the cause for the need of the gospel. And, and so I gave my life to Christ at 16 in a very punctiliar, clear way. Remember it like it was yesterday and I'll tell you later it was in a swimming pool where I heard the gospel so clearly and committed my life to it. That was 16. Finished college, went to seminary, got on staff at a large church, was the junior high pastor and realized, well, let me, let me back up. I, I was one of my theology classes and I had to write a paper on answering the questions that we're talking about here. What is baptism? And I'm writing the paper, and I'm footnoting and getting all my research done. I'm feeling excited about it. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. I was converted at 16 and baptized at 9. There's a disconnect here. And so for a few weeks, I was in torment and turmoil, like, I'm on staff. I can't be baptized. What are they going to think about me and us and our pastor? And I mean, this is, this is crazy. And then finally I talked to a fellow friend. I said, this is, he says, you need to be baptized. That nine-year-old, you weren't a Christian. I said, yeah, but God can retrofit. He's really wise. And uh, he says, no, you need to be baptized. And so I swallowed my pride and I was. And it was nothing but encouragement that I heard from people. I thought I was going to ruin the Christian faith by confusing people. It was a wonderful, wonderful. And you know what else, by the way? Oh, I slept better. I know so many people who felt the conviction to be baptized for weeks, months, years, decades. It is the easiest part of Christianity. The easiest you go in the water, you go under, you come up, you're done. Don't you wish dealing with materialism was that quick? Lust, envy. It was just, oh, you, you're one and done. No, no. So, so simple. Let me also encourage you that we're not supposed to take the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table, communion, in an unworthy manner, meaning that we're harboring sin. We know of a known sin that we, we haven't repented of. Well, let me say as a, as a careful and loving pastor and shepherd, if you're a believer in Christ and you've yet to be baptized, you have identified 
a place that you're in disobedience. And the Lord says, don't take the elements of the table in an unworthy manner. If you're doing that and you know you should be baptized and you haven't, friends, you're, you're doing so in disobedience. What's the solution? Be baptized. Don't let pride prevent you from obedience. Lastly, what does it imply? What does baptism imply? We baptized 10 people this morning. What does that imply? Now, a public association with Christ, all the privileges and responsibilities and expectations that come with being a Christian. In other words, you're now open to church discipline. That's why when I tell a parent who wants to talk about an eight-year-old getting baptized, I say, are you ready for them to experience church discipline if they go off the rails? No. But that's... There is no junior Christian and mature Christian. There's only one standard of faith. You're also open to enjoy the Lord's table. Listen to the words of old preacher, Dr. DeHaan. He writes this. In the early days of the church, baptism was a declaration that a believer was definitely identifying himself with that group of people who were called Christians who were despised, and who were hated. To be a Christian meant something. To identify yourself with those who were called Christians meant persecution, maybe even death. It meant being ostracized from your family, shunned by your friends. And the one act which was the final declaration of this identification was baptism. As long as a man gathered with Christians, he was tolerated. But when once he submitted to baptism, he declared to all the world, I belong to this despised group called Christians. And immediately he was persecuted, hated, and despised. In baptism, therefore, the believer entered into the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. A person might be a believer and keep it strictly a secret and thus avoid unpleasantness and suffering. But once he submitted to public baptism, he had burned his bridges behind him, end quote. Listen, baptism is a big deal. It's not just a sweet thing we do with our kids. It is a big deal. You are telling the world, you are announcing to the enemy of your soul, I now belong to Christ. I'm identifying with him and his body, and you should expect me to behave and to believe like a Christian. In his explanation of Romans chapter 6, which says, Do you not know that all of us have, who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? Tom Schreiner says, This reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Listen to this. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who are baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians who put their faith in Christ. Let me say it again real carefully. Baptism doesn't save you, but in Paul's day, there was no such idea of a Christian who wasn't baptized. And if you say he was baptized, it was tantamount to saying he's a believer in the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? 
Is your hope in Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary atoning death, his literal, physical, real burial because he was dead, his coming back to life and resurrection? Do you believe that for yourself? If so, there is water. What prevents me from being baptized? We'd love to talk to you about this. Make sure that your faith is secure in the right understanding of the gospel. And every believer who believes the good news of Jesus, because he said so, should gloriously and willingly and want to be baptized. And we'd love to talk to you about that. Our prayer room is going to be open in just a moment. And if you have questions about that, uh, Chris and Jill will be over there. You can call our office. Any of the pastors or elders would love to sit down with you and talk with you about this. Let me just encourage you again. I don't know of an easier part of your sanctification than that. It's so wonderful. You proclaim, and then the, the rush of people who will love and support you should be encouraging and overwhelming. Let me pray. Father, thank you for how clear you are in your word, and thank you for the command to show the world that we have now committed ourselves to you. Uh, being baptized and showing and symbolizing our death with you and your death to self, to sin, to Satan, and coming up out of the water, our resurrection life in newness. Lord, there's no doubt those who have postponed baptism, don't let these words be a pounding on them, but a whispering of your sweet conviction to take care of this simple and public association with you through baptism. How thankful we are for the gospel. Pray again for these 10 who were baptized this morning, that you who have begun a good work in them will continue to perfect it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.